About eight weeks ago, I started asking you to get ready for this day, a day that we look at the resurrection, maybe a day that we look at it differently than we have. So follow along as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This was written about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It was Paul taking all of the accounts and kind of synthesizing them and giving it to the people at Corinth about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. At this point, Paul sounds like an attorney pleading for a, a certain verdict. It's as if he's summarizing everything, and he is making his appeal. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then Paul brings us a, a conclusion. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. About seven weeks ago, I, I opened up my computer or my phone, as I often want to do early in the morning, and I read a website that comes from the nation of Israel. You would think it was from Christians, but it isn't. It's simply from the nation of Israel, and they're doing exactly what nations should do. They're publicizing their land, and they're talking about good things and how you ought to come, and when you come, you ought to see this. And I knew on that day that the story I read was going to be the story I tell right now because it was about the pool of Siloam mentioned in John chapter 9 where Jesus healed a man who had been born since his who had been blind since his birth and the man came to Jesus and Jesus did this unusual healing event Oftentimes, Jesus simply spoke a word and, and people were healed even from afar or else he touched them and they were healed. But this time, Jesus stooped down and he made some mud and he put it on the man's eyes and he told him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash himself. And John chapter 9 says that he returned seeing. So that made me remember my trip to Israel in 1985. We went with about 15 or 20 people. It was early in June. Our children were out of school, and the whole family went to Israel. And we did the, the normal thing. We flew in uh, to the, the main airport. We went to Tel Aviv. We went north to Netanya. Uh, we went to Haifa. We went across, not that far, hour and a half, to the Sea of Galilee. We toured the Sea of Galilee. We saw where, where they baptized in the Jordan River, all kinds of things. We came down south. We came to Jericho. We went up to Jerusalem. And by that time, everybody was basically exhausted, all of that touring. We had made that uh, long, difficult trip across the Atlantic. And we had a Thursday afternoon free and so we said, I said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I've always wanted to do. We're going to go to Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, Hezekiah's tunnel is mentioned in the scripture. It's from 700 BC. It was when Isaiah was the prophet. It was a time of terrible turmoil. It was the time of war and rumors of wars. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians were coming against the nation of Israel. And the Assyrians were the major power of the world. And Hezekiah the king did what any good leader should do. He started preparing his people. He started preparing Jerusalem because warfare in that day was like this. 
if you were being attacked, you came within the walled cities. And there were many of those. And Jerusalem was a well-fortified walled city. And the attacking army would come, and instead of making a frontal assault, instead of making an assault that would, would, take, that would lose many lives, think about it this way. Uh, Jerusalem is built on a hill, sharp ravine in the Kidron Valley. You try to go up and fight that, you are at a strategic disadvantage no, many, no matter how many soldiers you have, no matter how powerful your army is. And so they simply would go and wait them out. And about three years later, they would starve them out. That's the way you did warfare. And it would take about three years. We got plenty of examples of that happening. Unless, unless you cut off the water supply and then the siege was rather quick and easy. So when it looked like the Assyrians were going to come against Jerusalem, Hezekiah went down to the Kidron Valley, to the Gihon Spring, and he made a decision that we're going to build a tunnel to get the water from the Gihon Spring, which is outside the city walls and can be cut off, and we're going to tunnel it under the walls of Jerusalem inside the city wall. And so he made that decision to start on each end chiseling through solid rock and meeting together in the middle, 1,749 feet, just about a third of a mile through solid rock. So I'd, you read about that in the Bible in the King's material. I, you read about it in history. It is well documented. And, and so in 1985, where do I want to go? I want to go to Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, since 1985, the people of Israel have figured this thing out. This is a major tourist attraction. And to get to go through that is something everybody ought to do. And so my guess is a lot of people have been through it since that time. But when I went through it, there was just a few, a handful of people who wanted to go. So I wanted to go. I took my daughters, six and 11, and we went through the tunnel. And there was a teenager on the trip who, who encouraged her mother to come with us. So here were five people. So I go to the, the tunnel. I don't, all I know is how to get there. I, I suppose we took a taxi or somebody got us there. And when I got there, I don't know what I'm doing. All I knew was we're going to wear uh, bathing suits and we're going to have a flashlight. And so we went, started going through the tunnel. And there was a man standing there. And I said, have you ever been through the tunnel? And he said, yes. And I said, would you take us through the tunnel? Now, it's not like you can't get through the tunnel. I mean, there's one way in and there's another way out. So there are two parts to it. And so it's not, you can't get lost. No other sections to turn off into. But I didn't know who this guy was and he didn't know who I was. He's probably as scared of me as I was of him. But we went through the tunnel together. And the water, cold, fresh, rushing through, about, about this deep, 
And every now and then it would gush. And there would be this wave of water. I have no idea what caused it, but there was a wave of water. And every time that was the case, I had to take Emily, my six-year-old, and pick her up so she wouldn't go underwater. So we did that a number of times going through. We got right to the middle of the tunnel. And my guide, my guide showed me where the inscription had been, just about this size, of how this two groups of, let's call them engineers, how these two groups of engineers started at either end and amazingly met in the middle like this, not like this, and like this, not one high and one low. It was amazing how they did that. And then they chiseled out an inscription that says, this is where we met. We came from each end. We met at this place. When the British band, when the British had the mandate over Palestine, they came in and chiseled that out and took it to a museum in London, and it's still there. So we went through the tunnel. But when we came out, what was I looking for? I was looking for the pool of Siloam. By the way, the word Siloam means to gush. And so they named it after what the water did from the Gihon Spring, how it occasionally would just gush through. But when we got out, I mean, it was nice. There were kids playing in the water that was coming through, but it was only six inches or so deep and not a pool and not a place you could go and wash in like Jesus had told the man to do. And for about 150 years, skeptics have used that against the truth of the Scripture. They've said there is no poo of Siloam, that that no long, that that never was, and that they made it up. And, and you can see how they're saying, well, if they made up this, then how do we believe about the resurrection? How can we believe it? Because if the geography is not true, and the history is not true, and the names are not true, then it probably means this is not true either. You can see how they used that and how that became so important. So six or seven weeks ago, early in the morning, I read this story from the, the, the land of Israel of how the pool of Siloam had been found and the Holy City Foundation in Jerusalem had decided to excavate it and they had already found the pool of Siloam that Jesus sent the man to, to wash in. And it really was a pool, not square, not a rectangle, a trapezoid, and deep enough for more than a person just to bend down and to wash his eyes, but he could get in the whole pool and wash his whole body. So I could not help but think that all through the years, those people have said if the geography is not right and the history is not right and the names are not right, then the theology is not right. But if you turn that logic around, if the geography is right, if the history is right, if the names are right, 
Think about all the names you know from Scripture. Let me just give you the ones that fit what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Think about Herod the Great. Think about Herod Antipas. Think about Archelaus. Think about Herod Agrippa. All of those are mentioned in the Gospels and the Acts. Think about Pontius Pilate. All of those names are known in Roman history. They were real people. Pilate was particularly well-known. He had been made governor by the Romans, but he was a bad ruler and he created havoc. And sometime after the crucifixion, a few years later, the Romans summoned him home. And no one knows what happens to him, but most people think that they may have executed him. But all of that, except for the execution, is documented in history. And so the geography of Hezekiah's tunnel and where the walls of the city were and where the pool of Siloam was and is and the history, the, 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 the Assyrians... Sennacherib, and all of those things, and the, the people that we know in the New Testament, all of those are true. So what does that point to if we follow it logically, that the theology is also true? And I have waited and wanted to speak these words to you. That the resurrection is a fact a well-authenticated fact that is true to all we know of that time and of that place. Let's look at it. What did Paul say? Paul said that the resurrection is a fact. Now, he is writing to the church at Corinth. And let's remember when this was. Jesus was crucified about A.D. 30 and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. About A.D. 35, Paul was saved. And we put that together because we know about, and that means a month or two or a few months away, about AD 48, Paul was in Antioch of Syria teaching in a church when the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul, Paul, and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. And that was the first missionary journey. So Paul went on the first journey. It took about a year. He made a second journey, and he went to Corinth, and he began the church at Corinth, and Corinth was different from everywhere else. In most places, Paul went to, to a Jewish synagogue or to a group of Jews in the city, and he, took, he told them the Scripture and that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he had seen the risen Lord. And the church would begin, but Corinth was different. They weren't saved out of Judaism. They were saved out of paganism. About A.D. 51 or 52, Paul then later on went to Ephesus, stayed there three years, and while he was there, he wrote the letters to the Corinthians. He wrote more to the Corinthians than any other church. And what he said was, he was talking about how to live because they had no examples. I mean, what if you went into a church 
and make it a typical church of 100 people. And, and you look around and everybody became a believer three years ago and nobody's been taught theology and nobody has understood the scripture and everybody's in the same boat. It makes it really hard. So Paul had to write to the church at Corinth, but he wanted to assure them that the theology was true. Here's what he said. I want you to know that what I received, how did he receive it? Two ways. Number one, that little phrase usually means by direct revelation of God. That which I received, but there would be another way. And the other way would be logical to us. He admit. James. In fact, we know that. In AD 50, he met James, had a conversation with him. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he met the other apostles. And he knew what was happening. And he no doubt had talked to Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, those people who were there at the crucifixion and the resurrection. So what I received both from God, and from God through people, I have delivered to you. And what was it? It's the gospel. It's the gospel that saves us, that Christ died according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, among many others. That he was buried. And that on the third day, he was raised from the dead according to to the scriptures. Paul is saying, this is a fact. This is how you were saved. This is how we came to know the Lord. It is not by going to church. It is not by being good. It is not by having a set of principles that you follow. It is by the gospel that Jesus became, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul said, it's a fact. Now, you and I and the people we talk with need a little evidence for that fact. And Paul gives us an abundance. Paul would say, I would say, it's a well-authenticated fact. Based on eyewitness testimony, of many, many people. Notice what Paul says, that Christ was raised, uh, that he died, was buried, was raised, and verse 5, and that he appeared. And that's the way it normally is described. He appeared. He was seen. They knew who he was. They were as shocked as anybody could be, but he appeared. And who did he appear to? He appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for Simon Peter that means the rock. So he appeared to Cephas. I read through the the gospel accounts of the resurrection this morning. Probably takes you 15 minutes. It'd be a great thing to you to do later on today or early in the week. Just read through each one of them and read what is said about the appearances. And you read about Simon Peter being there. Remember the Gospel of John tells us that when, when the women came and said the stone has been rolled away and the body is missing, Simon Peter and John ran to the tomb. John is writing, remember all of these were young men, they were not old men, they were young men. 
and they were writing. And I always think John is writing just like I would write it. John says, Peter and John were running and John outran Peter. That's what I would say too. But Peter rushed into the tomb and saw that it was empty and the Lord appeared to Cephas. Then he appeared to the 12 minus Judas, of course. Then he appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And here's what, here's what Paul says. Most of those are still living. And in fact, that makes really good sense because it had happened 25 years before. And most of them were still living, but Paul said some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is the favorite phrase of Paul and of Jesus, by the way, to describe a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has died. Some of those have fallen asleep. What is Paul implying? He's implying those people are alive. Why don't you ask one of them? What else is he implying? I couldn't tell this if it weren't true. Because the people I've told you are eyewitnesses, all they've got to do is to say, I have no idea what he's talking about. What does he mean by that? That didn't happen. The, the idea that they are eyewitnesses makes it a well-authenticated fact. And how many people would there have been? And at this point, I don't know. How many people was it to whom Jesus appeared? Well, we know at least 500. But would it be unreasonable to think that he appeared to 1,500? Or 2,000, which is about the number of people in this room right now, how would you deny 1,500 or 500 people who could give testimony to anything? Then, then Paul said he appeared to James. Now, I've mentioned that James was head of the Jerusalem church, but where did he come from? Well, the Gospels tell us Jesus had four brothers. We would call them half-brothers. All of them are named. One of them was named Jude. One of them was named James. All of them were named. Then the Bible says, and he had sisters, and they're not named, and we don't know how, but the plural indicates there were two of them. Maybe more, but he had brothers and sisters. And as far as we know, and we have Gospel proof, that those brothers and sisters had a hard time accepting the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah that was come into the world. How could it be that somebody in our house was the Messiah? Remember, there was a time that they stood outside and somebody came to Jesus and said, Jesus, your brothers and your sisters are calling for you. They want to take you home with them. What does that sound like? It sounds like someone who has a mental problem and we need to take you home. That's how they thought of Jesus. But when Jesus appeared to James, James was saved and then became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Look at Acts chapter 15 and you will see James prominently mentioned. 
And by the way, you come to the end of the New Testament, you find a one-chapter book by the name of Jude. And we're not sure that it was the half-brother of Jesus, but that is the way the, the teaching of the church has taught us through the centuries, going all the way back to Jude. And then he appeared to all the apostles, and then Paul said, and last of all, he appeared unto me as one untimely born. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was raised in AD 30 or thereabouts and ascended into heaven. And Paul did not meet Jesus until about AD 35. And it was that appearance on the road to Damascus that explains Paul. What, what Paul is saying is, how do you explain my life apart from the resurrection? And how do you do that? How do you explain the, the transformation of James apart from the resurrection? How do you explain the fact that with the 11 surviving disciples, that 10 of them were martyred because of their faith? How do you describe a, a Stephen who was the first Christian martyr? How do you describe that? And how do you explain it apart? From they had seen the risen Lord and had been transformed because of it and had received the Holy Spirit into their lives and had experienced the peace and the love and the joy that comes from knowing God. How do you explain it apart from the fact of what they actually said that they had seen the Lord and that he appeared to them? Now, we don't know how many eyewitnesses there were, but do you know what happened in Jerusalem after the resurrection and the ascension? And while it was going on, Remember the day of Pentecost, 50, year, 50 days after the resurrection, 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 men were saved, plus women and children. And not long after that, another great day of harvest, 5,000. Many people estimate that in Jerusalem, there were as many as 50,000 believers. And do you know what Paul uh, never talks about? He doesn't talk about the guards, the Roman guards who were affected by the, by the angels and the stone being rolled away. And they don't, uh, they don't get, he doesn't give you so many other things that we could talk about. It's a fact. It's a well-authenticated fact. But here's the part we need to get. It's essential. It's essential to our preaching. It's essential to our faith. It's essential to our hope because it authenticates the gospel. How did they know that when Jesus died on the cross that it affected their salvation? Well, the proof of that was in the resurrection something that they could see, that they couldn't dispute, that they couldn't explain away. The proof of it was in the resurrection. Paul says if, if the dead are not raised, then, then those who have died are lost and that there is no hope. 
I've been to a lot of funerals and most of them of believers. And But some of people who were not believers and their family were not believers. And what a sad, what a sad day that is. And what Paul says that every death would be sad in that sense. Were it not for the resurrection, we would have no hope. There are people, skeptics, unbelievers, critiques of the faith, who love to talk about when a person dies, it's just a, it's like an animal that dies. And that's all that it is. Until it's somebody they know. And then they, they truly hope in the way you and I use the word that there's something beyond that. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The word hope is a settled assurance. It's something that is not yet, but is coming. In one sense, it's not yet and is coming. In another sense, it's already accomplished because it is sure. That is the hope that we have in Christ, and that is the way you can live. What A few weeks ago, I, I, I talked about deaths of despair, and I had no idea what I was really doing to you. I got the most emails that said, thank you for talking about the deaths of despair. And then they would tell me about the person that they love and who had either taken their life or had had an overdose or something has happened and it was because of despair. Here's what I want to say to all of us who are here. That there is a God who loves you so deeply. And he does not want you to live in anxiety or depression or without hope or with a feeling that all is lost and there's nothing that I can do. I, I try to tell people like that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at Scripture and I want you to find out what the Bible says you are by faith in Christ. Could I ask you to do that? So who am I in Christ? What does God think of me? And whether you are male or female, whether you are young or old, whether you are healthy or you have some struggles with health, here's what God says, that you are created in the image of God. That God, that God sent his son who died specifically for you, but not for you alone, but for all of the people of the world. And that God wants you to be his child. And he has given his son so that all who receive him, that all who trust him, that all who submit to him should not perish but have eternal life, a life of hope, a life of love, a life of peace, a life of joy. And here's what I found. The more I emphasize Jesus, the more I talk about who I am in Christ, 
the less depressed I am, the less anxious I am. And the more I spend time in prayer and in the word asking God to show me who he is and what he wants me to do, the more hopeful I feel about the future and the more encouraged I am about the present. And with all of my heart, I want you to have that. I want believers to have that. Find out who you are in Christ. And for those of you who haven't trusted Christ, I want you to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul said he wanted. I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. It's a fact. It's a well-authenticated fact. It's an essential fact. And it is a triumphant fact, and that comes through what God, not what we do, but what God did in Christ. So here's what Paul said, as, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As Christ has been raised, so his followers will be raised. And then he ends the chapter. He kind of begins with when you're saved. He kind of ends with when you are, when you are raised from the dead. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's the victory God wants everybody here to have. The victory that comes from knowing Christ and offering your life unto him. I pray that that, what a great day this would be. It wouldn't just be an Easter, but it would be the Easter that you came to know Christ and you received the Spirit of God within you and you had that new life that is in Christ. You receive that by simply opening your heart to the Lord. John said, as many as received him, Christ, he gave the power to become the children of God. We invite you to offer yourself to Christ today. We, we have a simple, gentle, non-manipulative invitation. We ask you to come talk with a pastor. Maybe you don't know how to do this. They know how to help you and guide you through it. But I want to say to believers, it's time for us to live as the people of God based on Holy Scripture, living according to God's Word and His work within us. And maybe today you would be convicted that your life needs to be different for God and for His glory. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing and we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you. For this great day, thank you for giving us your son and making us new people in Christ. God, I pray you would draw people to yourself. And having been drawn, that they will follow after you and trust you. And we pray this in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Come now.